Well, this morning, we'll continue our conversation that we have begun here at the 1st of January, and our theme for the winter of 2023 is, Why Does Anything Matter? And so we are exploring that question. Why does anything matter? So today, I want us to look at um, Genesis 2. I've entitled this message today, Humanity, God's Glory. And let's look at the second page of our Bibles. We've we spent a good bit of time already on page 1 of our Bibles. But I want us to look at how the story continues in Genesis 2 as the account continues. So let's look at Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We'll skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman out of, from the rib which he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. <clears throat> wow. <clears throat> so, what a remarkable story. Let me just remind y'all of what we've already learned during our conversation together. First lesson, God is. We've talked about that, the fact that the Bible opens and God simply is. He has no beginning, he has no ending, he is eternal. And then God created everything was our lesson last Sunday morning. Here's what's uh, fascinating to me about creation. Creation continues to stun us. I, I was reading several articles just this week, and uh, there was an article from back in uh, May of 2022 in the New York Times where a group of scientists presented the very 
first glimpse of the black hole at the center of our galaxy. And these scientists were very excited. One of them said, we have been exploring all around this black hole now for 20 years. And we have just now been able, through the miracle of this telescope that's been invented, we are able to actually get our first glimpse of the silent giant center, she said, of our galaxy. In January of this past year, scientists announced the discovery off the coast of Tahiti, something that has never been seen before. On the ocean floor, there is a two-mile-long coral reef, and it looks like a bed of roses. It is the largest discovery of a coral reef at this depth in the ocean in history, never seen before. And the scientists were marveling in its existence and the glory of its beauty. And then in March of 2022, scientists announced that the Hubble telescope was able for the very first time to see the most distant star ever discovered, 12.9 billion light years away from Earth, some 50 times larger than our sun. Scientists were amazed. Just this last week in Grapevine, Texas, a, a group of scientists gathered to talk about the universe, and Karen Oberg was one of the lecturers. Karen Oberg is a Swedish professor of astronomy, and she is the director of undergraduate studies at Harvard University. When she began her career in astronomy, she was an atheist, but after spending all these years studying the heavens, she has now become a Christian. And she tells in her speech, I, I, I just actually printed it out and I just read through what all she had to say. And she just talks about it in her speech how no one should be surprised that she has found God through the heavens. She said that, she says, believing in God, far from being an impediment to scientific inquiry, actually can be helpful for scientists because of the sure foundation that a belief in the Creator provides, she says, I think we should feel quite confident that having a true philosophy and a true religion should make it easier to make scientific discoveries and not the opposite. Did I mention that she's the director of all undergraduate studies at Harvard? And she says this in this speech, she said, why should you be surprised that a scientist like me believes in God? She quotes Georges Lamatre. I don't know if his name means anything to you, but he was a Belgian theoretical physicist. He's known for two things. One is he is the one who came up with the theory of the expanding universe. He and Einstein argued about that. And eventually Einstein came to agree with Lemaitre. And the Hubble telescope has proven it. He also is the first scientist to propose the Big Bang. That's what he's known for. And But remarkably, as uh, Dr. Oberg points out in her speech, Lemaitre was not only a Belgian theoretical physicist, he was also a Catholic priest. So she said, the father of our two biggest thoughts and theories in trying to understand the creation of the universe actually came from the clergy who happens to be a scientist. So it's fascinating to me that we're still exploring, we're still discovering this incredible universe in which we live. And the majesty of it stuns us. Today, I want to talk to you about the most 
stunning part of creation, as majestic and glorious as all of that is, at least in my opinion, God created humanity. Human beings are incredibly majestic, aren't they? I, I would point to us as God's crowning achievement. Now, let's just look at the Bible again, okay? So if you have your Bible open, let's look at page two because there are just some things that happen here on page two that I want to point out to you, okay? Um, If you look at verse four, the NIV translates like this. This is the account. The word that's translated account, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Toledoth is the Hebrew word. It's found several times in the book of Genesis. In fact, in Hebrew, when you read Genesis in Hebrew, which I don't do very well because I struggle with Hebrew. However, um, I know just enough to be dangerous, but toledot, the reason that word's important is because there are some scholars that they arrange the entire book of Genesis around that one word. And you'll find it here in verse four. In other words, the writer, presumably Moses, says, now let me tell you what's happening next, Okay. And then I want you to notice that the naming of God changes in verse four. And let me show you how we help you understand that in English. Do you notice in verse four it says, now in in page one, we have the word Elohim in Hebrew, just translated very simply with the English word God, okay? But if you get to verse four, notice what it says in verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Notice what it says, when the Lord God, do you see that? Lord God, do you notice Lord is in all caps, okay? So what the translators are telling you is anytime you see the word Lord in your Old Testament, all caps, that is translating Yahweh. That is God's covenant name. So for the first time, we get not just God, we get Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. It's actually rare that you have that combination in the Old Testament. It only happens a handful of times. Lord God, like this. Now, you will find Lord God many times in the Old Testament, but here's what you need to look for. Sometimes when Lord God is written in your English Bible, God will be in all caps, G-O-D, all caps. Whenever Lord God appears and Lord is in small caps and God is in all caps, that is Adonai Yahweh. That's another name for God, master, and then Yahweh is God's covenant name. Here, we've gotten uh, Yahweh Elohim. So Lord is in all caps. Are y'all still with me? Point being, there are several names in Hebrew for God. So far on page one, just Elohim. Now we get the covenant name of God, Israel's God, Yahweh, combined with Elohim. So Moses is letting us know this wasn't just any God that created everything that is. This is our God, our covenant God, the God that we know has done all of this. Okay, so that's where the, the phrases shift just a little bit. And so when you're reading your English Bible, if you sit in all caps, whether it's Lord or God, that's always Yahweh underneath it. It's always the covenant name of God that God gave to Israel. What does Yahweh mean? I am. That's the translation of Yahweh. I am. Okay. Now with that said, you notice we've read Genesis 1, now we're reading Genesis 2. Some people say, well, this is a, this is a different creation account. I mean, we've already, we've already had creation. Now we're getting creation all over again. 
Well, let me read to you what Derek Kidner says about that. He's written a wonderful commentary on Genesis. He says this about Genesis 2. Man is now the pivot of the story. As in chapter 1, he was the climax. Everything is told in terms of him. Even the primeval waste is shown awaiting him. Chapter 2, verse 5. The shrubs, the plants. And the narrative works outward from man himself to man's environment. Garden, trees, river, beasts, and birds in logical as against chronological order to reveal the world as we were meant to see it. A place expressly prepared for our delight and discipline. It is misleading to call this a second creation account. For it hastens to localize the scene, passing straight from the world at large to a garden in the east. All that follows is played out on this narrow stage. In other words, Kidner's argument is this. Don't necessarily read Genesis 2 as a separate account. Some do. His argument is this. View it as Genesis 1 as the macro story. Genesis 2 is the micro story. Genesis 2 is the cosmos with the climax, humanity being created. Genesis 2 now is a story of human beings on this very narrow stage that we know as planet Earth. That's helpful to me. And I, I would agree with Kidner. And so this whole story of human beings now being created by God. What, a, what an interesting turn of events. Because human beings, now think about human beings. Think about how amazing we are. Every human being pregnant with potential, bearing God's image, reflecting God's glory in unique ways. Human beings, uh, they're distinct from all creation. They, 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 think about us. We have self-awareness. We actually know we exist. We have complex language and communication that doesn't exist outside of our species. We have moral accountability. We have genius that's on display through all types of technological and social and cultural advancements. All of that is miraculous. Eugene Peterson says when he was teaching seminary, uh, he's dead now, but he tells a story about a young man who had, a, had him in class, and the young man lived about 40 minutes away from the seminary. He had to ride the bus every day. And uh, he said one morning, this man told his wife, he said, today I think I'm just going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation. And he left. The next day he got up and he was getting ready to leave and he said, honey, today I'm just going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation. Then the next day he told her the same thing. On the third day she said, before you leave, I I'm okay with you taking an occasional walk down by the beach or that kind of thing, but don't you think you ought to go to class? He said, honey, I've been to class every day. She said, what do you mean? She said, you said you're immersing yourself in creation. He said, what I mean by that is the bus ride. <laughs> he said, can you imagine a more creative experience than to get on a bus and ride with human beings for 40 minutes to and from school? He says, it's amazing. There's all kinds of people on these buses. People who look like me, people who don't look like me, little children, Older people, people with all kinds of disabilities, people who seem to be happy, young people. He said, I get on the bus every day and I marvel at God's creation. Eugene Peterson said, don't be so amazed by a hawk flying in the sky. Be amazed by a human being sitting right next to you in any circumstance and admire the creative genius of God. I would agree with that. Human beings are absolutely miraculous. Look at us. Look at what God has done. 
So Genesis 2 is about us. And so let me just walk you through it this morning, if I may. As we're building this apologetics uh, perspective. In other words, what is it we believe? Why does anything matter in this old world? Well, one of the reasons I would say that things matter in this world is because God created us. Okay? So what do I learn about human beings in Genesis 2? Well, let me just walk you through it real quickly. Human beings are living beings. Now, if you look back at Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. The focus is on nouns, image and likeness. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 7, the focus is on the verbs, formed and breathed. And they go together. The nouns is a statement. The verbs are a story. And God reveals himself through statements. God reveals himself through story. And I want you to notice, God formed man, it says. There's a statement about God's skill and God's sovereignty. This was God's decision. And then notice how personal it is. He breathed life into the nostrils of man. Face to face, personal. So on the one hand, God is sovereign. On the other hand, God is personal. Here's what's interesting about that word. If you'll look at it, verse seven, he breathed into his nostrils. You know, the Hebrew word for breath is ruah. It's found over 400 times in the Old Testament, but that's not the word that's used here. This word here is a very different word. Nesama is the Hebrew word. It's only used 25 times. Here's what's interesting. The only time nesama is used is to refer to God's relationship to humans. So if you read that God breathes life into animals, ruah. God breathes life into humans. It uses this word, nesama, different word. So there's something unique about this relationship between God and man. God is giving man something he doesn't give anybody else. Man becomes this living being, this, this soul, this body, this complete person. Mankind is unique. We are God-breathed humans. We have life. We have souls. We have bodies. We have an eternal existence because God has breathed life into us personally. So what do I learn? Page two, human beings are different than any other part of creation. It is only us who receive this breath of life from God. Human beings are spiritual beings. I want you to notice in verse nine, the Bible says that God put trees in the garden and he put two of them in particular at the very middle of the garden. He put a tree of life and a tree of knowledge. Now, here's what happens. In verse 15, human beings get a divine message from God. You can and you cannot, he says. You may and you may not. You can have the fruit of this tree. You cannot have the fruit of that tree. And so right off the bat, here's what we learned, that different than all the rest of creation, we, we read this morning that the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19. The heavens have no option but to declare the glory of God. <laughs> That's just how it is. God created the heavens and the heavens declare the glory of God. That's not true about you and me, though. You and I have a choice. We are willful people. God's created us with agency. Not only do we have awareness, we have agency. And so to show that we're different, God has created us as spiritual people. And so we're different than the rest of creation. We have willful choices. And so God says, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And that opportunity will last you the rest of your life. And that is to choose my way or to choose your way. What's at stake here with the tree of knowledge is moral 
autonomy, moral accountability. That's what's happening. And so basically, here's what's set before Adam. You can decide for yourself and go your own way. You can be self-made. You can be self-determining. You can be self-reliant. You can choose what you want to do with creation, and you can defy the creator if you want. Or you can obey, obey my way, and you can do what I've offered you and find life. It's up to you. And so Adam and Eve, once Eve appears, they are going to be willful free agents. You will now have the choice, either choose God's way or choose your way. How's it going to turn out, y'all? For Adam and Eve, what are they going to do? They're going to choose their own way, right? How about you? How's it working with you? When God sets these choices before you, you're aware of his way. Well, we know what happened to Adam and Eve. Their story's told in the Bible. What if yours was? <clears throat> I wonder what it would say about us. How often when I'm facing that opportunity, because that's what it represents. It's, it's, it's an opportunity, if you will. Not, not necessarily what the quality that the trees possess. It's the opportunity they represent. And human beings right off the bat are spiritual people. Well, God has created us that way for his glory. Human beings live in a cultural context. There's something more going on here. If you look at verse 10, you get this little interlude where the writer describes the Garden of Eden to us. Now, where was the Garden of Eden? We're not sure. If you're, if you're in the Holy Land and you know, if you're in Israel, if, if that's your perspective, if you're in Canaan, then this would be the east of you. We know where two of these rivers were, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We have no clue about the other two. Not sure where they were. But the point is, there's a life beyond Eden. There's, there's a life beyond what's happening right here on the second page of the Bible. In other words, there's a cultural context, a broader context. Here it's referred to geographically. In other words, Adam and Eve are not going to just live in their primitive state all along. There's going to be layers of complexity that will un unfortunately sometimes prove to be great challenges for the people of God. That's still true today. Um, when we follow the Lord, we find ourselves beyond Eden, if you will, living in a much broader culture. Once you notice also, human beings are male and female. This was God's original design. If you look at verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then you'll notice verse 18 of chapter 2. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. The word suitable means different than complementary to. The word helper means support, aid. Sometimes people are a little offended by that word, but that very word is used to describe God throughout the entire Old Testament. Is someone to stand beside you, support you, encourage. And so what happens, God then chooses to create woman from man. And we hear that remarkable story beginning in verse 21. And the beautiful thing about it is woman was created wholly as man's partner. Now with male and female, completely distinct, different, but complementary to. I want you to notice in this story in Genesis 2, there's nothing mentioned about the childbearing ability of a woman. 
Her value is not in her ability to bear children. Her value is in the fact that she exists. She is a woman. She's standing right next to a man. So in the very beginning, valued for just being human, both created in the image of God. And so today, that is somewhat of a questionable belief. In fact, we know that people struggle with this whole idea today, at least some do with with human beings being created male and female. I came across an article this week about the whole conversation about transgenderism. And I know you're familiar with this phenomenon of what's happening in our society. And, and so when, when you read about it, it's challenging in a lot of ways. There was a study published in June of this past year that estimates nearly 1.64 million people over the age of 13 in the United States identify themselves as transgender based on an analysis of newly expanded federal health surveys. And conversation, this article, um, it was actually in Reuters, it has to, to do with how is science responding to those particular claims, the challenge of understanding identity and how do we square it with what we see what the scripture says? It is challenging. Here's what I would say when I look at what the Bible teaches us, that God created human beings, male and female. The Bible specifically states that. Genesis 2, it bears it out with the creation of woman. Then when you look at the scientific evidence, which I've done a great deal of research in that, and those of you who are members of our church, you know that Ricky stands at that incredible intersection in our cultural conversations today in his ministry with Living Hope. But here's what we know scientifically. Every cell in the body of a human being is either male or female. We have done the research, Watson and Crick, and their understanding of DNA. Francis Collins and his team have map mapped the human genome. You can alter physical appearance you can through chemicals. You can begin taking all kinds of drugs depending upon the age of the person. You can take puberty blockers. You can do all kinds of things to manipulate your physical appearance. What you cannot do scientifically, you cannot change the cell structure of your body. And so there is nothing you and I can do with the cells in our bodies. We are either male or female, regardless of how we present ourselves scientifically, that is the truth. And every scientist I've ever read agrees with that. The challenge is with the social construct. And so you will hear some people say that they are non-binary. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Scientifically, that's impossible. Now, psychologically, it's possible. Sociologically, it's possible for people to agree with it. But biologically, there's no such thing as non-binary. Scientifically, our bodies are designed as either male or female. And here's what I would say about it. It's a complex conversation we find ourselves in today. We are graciously and lovingly and compassionately committed to the truth as best we know it. And then it's on us to determine how do we minister to people who face such challenging issues in their own personal life. The answer is not judgment. And it's certainly not anger. The answer is compassion and grace. However, at the very heart of it, also for us, somewhere in the conversation, there has to be a discussion about truth. And that's the challenge that we will all face. That's true of so many issues, isn't it? 
Not, not just this one. There are many cultural conversations to where you and I as Christians, after we come to grips with what we believe, well then the answer for us is to be compassionate and gracious and loving and truthful. We are trying to find our way to be like Jesus who was full of both grace and truth. We need them both. We don't need to be angry. It's not enough to be right. Vance Havner used to say, your theology can be straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. And there are many people like that. That's not our answer. It's gracious, compassionate, loving expressions without surrendering the truth. As I read the text, God's original design, human beings created male and female. And then I want you to notice Human beings are social creatures. Do you see verse 18? You've been reading your Bible in Genesis 1, and behold, it was good. Behold, it was good. Behold, it was good. Behold, it, it was very good. Then you come to the first, not good. And what is that, verse 18? It's not good for the man to be alone. The man's already in relationship with creation. He's naming the animals. He's exerting his power and authority. But human beings weren't created for power. They were created for fellowship, for relationship, for community, and so it wasn't good to be alone. Human beings are designed to live, to love, to give, to care, to embrace, to be embraced, to journey together. And so God's designed us that way, to live as social creatures. And so you and I find our way in these meaningful relationships that the Lord puts around us and makes available to us. It starts out with our family. We're not born in isolation. We're not born on our own volition. How many of you chose to be born no one. How many of you chose when to be born? How many of you chose to whom you would be born? No one. What happens to us is we are born in a social context. And it is in that social context we learn how to be social creatures in our families and then ultimately in our communities. From the very beginning, God said it's not good to be alone. We live together in communities. It's the beauty of the church, isn't it? And so... I'm grateful for the church. So finally, I'd sum, up, sum it up like this. God has created human beings in his image and crowned us with his glory. That's really what this text is teaching us. I love, I love the end of Genesis 2. You've got Adam and Eve in paradise, right? And, and notice how it ends. They were naked and unashamed. Now, for Moses to write that, if he's the author, that said a lot. Because in the Jewish understanding, nakedness is always associated with guilt and shame. Always. Never with innocence. And yet in the very beginning, the very beginning, we have Adam and Eve. Notice where they are now. They're in paradise. They're in harmony with God. They're in harmony with God's creation. They're in harmony with God's purpose. They're in harmony with each other. Does it get any better with that than that? <laughs> what a beautiful statement. But then we know what's going to happen on page three, don't we? John Milton calls it paradise lost. Derek Kidner in his wonderful commentary on Genesis calls it vanished concord. I love that British phrase. <laughs> There's Adam and Eve in harmony with all that God has for them. Well, here's what I would say to you and I today in conclusion. You are God's handiwork. You've been uniquely crafted and created by God himself. And he is sovereign in your life. 
And he is personal in his desire to be in relationship with you. And he has given you the precious gift of life. So you've been created. You've been called by him, unlike the rest of creation. You've been commissioned by him, unlike the rest of creation. You are an image bearer. You are a glory reflector. And every single day, you and I together make willful choices as to how much of the image of God is going to be born today through me and how much of the glory of God is going to be on display today through me. I'm a willful free agent. It's up to me to decide, am I going to live into the calling of God in my life or am I going to live in my own calling? My prayer for you and for me is that you and I will live out our original design and purpose, and we will fulfill God's glory for us. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful today for all that you've done. We marvel at creation. And as Eugene Peterson says, not, not just at the grandeur of a mountain landscape or a soaring eagle or the beauty and the richness of how you've decorated your creation, all of that is incredible, but we actually marvel when we see each other and the fact that this is your creative handiwork, your, your genius on display. Human beings, my goodness, thank you. Thank you for letting us be a part of your design. And Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, we will live fully into your purpose for us and that we will make good because you've chosen to breathe the breath of life in us. It's our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.